you know, as we are traveling through Second Kings, there's a there's a really uh, you know as I was working this down, there's a reoccurring theme all the way down through chapters three and four. So let's jump in here. It says now Jerome the son of Ahab became king over Israel or over the top northern tribes at Samaria. That's the capital of the northern tribes. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, he was he was wicked, but not like his father and mother. Remember Jezebel and Ahab, not like them. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. And, and I think for good reason, because Elijah had killed all of the prophets of Baal. One of the commentators I read said he put it away to try and find good favor with Jehoshaphat. I, 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 don't, I don't see that, that. They're just guessing, but maybe that's what happened. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he did not depart from them. And remember, those are the sins that, hey, uh, the golden cows are the God of, of Jehovah. We don't have to go down to Jerusalem. And so uh, that's who they're clinging to up there. And remember, Jeroboam set up a golden statue in Bethel as well as in Dan. Verse 4, Now Misha, king of Joab, was a sheep breeder, and obviously a very wealthy one. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and one wool of the 100,000 rams a year. So very successful, successful. But it happened when Ahab died, you know, when his dad died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. You know, he basically got tired of paying the tax. And this word rebelled, it means he had probably attacked a few cities in Israel as well. So, you know, you're supposed to go, um, did we already cover this? Yeah, we did briefly. If you look back in chapter one, verse one, it, it, it says this, but here we're going to get all the details. Remember, this is Israel territory that's been under Israeli control since the times of King David, and it's located east of the Dead Sea, just a little bit south of Hebron. You might want to look at your Bible map on that as we work our way down through here. And so we're seeing a greater decline in the power that Israel had over the surrounding nations. So King Jerome went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel because if one king is going to stop paying tax and tribute, no doubt others will as well. So he has to respond. Then he went and said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, who's over those bottom two southern tribes, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Now, it makes sense for Jehoshaphat to go because, like I said, Moab is on the east side of the Dead Sea and a little south of Hebron. So he could easily come and start attacking the south. And Jehoshaphat said, I'll go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, hopefully you're going, didn't we hear that before? Yeah, it is exactly word for word that Jehoshaphat said to Ahab when Ahab was still alive. He's saying this exact same thing now to his son. Remember Ahab sought false prophets in that pre-battle meeting and Jehoshaphat wanted a godly prophet. And remember that Ahab had Jehoshaphat wear his kingly robe into that battle and that, you know, Ahab wore the normal Joe gear. And so, you know, the, 
uh, the opposing king of Syria told his 32 captains, look, go after no one other than the king of Ahab. So they're going after the guy with the robes. And it, we saw that he was encircled by the enemy, but he called out to the Lord. And the Lord spared him. And there was that random guy who, uh, who, who just kind of drew his bow at random and nailed Ahab and Ahab died. Well, this is very similar because not in the sense of, of uh, seeking a bad prophet and a good prophet, but in the sense of he's going with Israel again, where his father, Jehoshaphat's father, had fought northern Israel because they are worshiping pagan gods. But here they're joining together, so maybe that civil war thing's over. Jehoshaphat has definitely skin in the game because just like in Syria in the last battle, Moab can affect the southern kingdom as well. But please notice, you still have a godly king and an ungodly king joining forces. Something the Lord will point out as we travel through this. And you're going to see, and I think this is critical for all of our lives, you're going to see that the godly king trumps over the ungodly king. Or as you and me in our own lives, as we're around unbelieving people, we can have an impact on their lives. Verse 8, then Jerome said, which way shall we go up? And Jehoshaphat answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom. Now, I would kind of like to think that Jerome is asking uh, the godly man for directions. I don't know if that's what's happening here. Could be that Jehoshaphat has had more military battles. Maybe that's why he's asking. And again, if you look at the back of your Bible, if you have those maps again, you're going to see that they are taking a dry, long, dusty road, probably some 40 plus miles out into the middle of nowhere. That, you know, they don't call it the wilderness of Edom for nothing. And uh, as they travel west and south of the Dead Sea, okay, they're going to stay on the west side of the Dead Sea. If you look at Hebron, drop straight down. That's how they're going. And they're dropping all the way south to the bottom of Dead Sea. And they're looping all the way around to, uh, to the south of the Dead Sea where they're going to come up. And they're going to be on the east side of the Dead Sea. And then you'll see Moab there on its southern border, right? You should see that on your map. There's nothing out there but sand, like nothing. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah as they are traveling way south and the king of Edom. So they, they and if you look on your maps as you pass through Hebron, they actually pass through Edom as they're traveling down through the bottom of the Dead Sea. So Edom joins up with this. And so now it's three kings against one. And they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And again, as you look at the map, totally around about route. And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. So they've not exactly thought this battle plan through real well. Uh, obviously, sending out a scout team would have been helpful. See, they're putting all their stock in this little creek that would flow south of the Dead Sea, but they get there and this creek is totally dried up. And the king of Israel said, alas, because he's just He's a guilty guy that is awaiting the judgment of God, it seems like. Uh, and look what he says. For the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Man, I'm, I'm, judgment's upon us right now. But this is how a man void of a relationship with the Lord God knows God, God's judgment is upon him. And so he blames God here. It's all God's fault. You know, God's going to now get us now. But Jehoshaphat, the man who has a relationship but the true God is going to seek God. And, and this is what I want you to see. He's going to seek to shine light in troubling times. 
the ungodly is accusing. Please notice that both men believe there are spiritual things at play. The ungodly says, oh, it's judgment. And Jehoshaphat is going to say, oh, no, watch what God can do. Because the other is going to seek to be delivered. But Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So, and I don't know if this reads, so Jehoshaphat's going, isn't one of those guys, one of your, isn't one of the godly prophets living down here? Or, but it, he, it, he doesn't seem to know his name. Or, so one of the servants of the king of Israel, the evil king, answered and said, yeah, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And I like this look here where Elijah, where Elisha washed the hands of Elijah. And here Elisha is going to be the one or, you know, as Elisha poured the water on And here Elisha is going to be the one to take it all forward after Elijah is picked up by the whirlwind. So I like the picture here of the servant being prepared to lead by example as he starts out here by pouring water. It's interesting to me that Jehoshaphat has the idea of a prophet of the Lord in the area, but it's the servant of the evil king who knew his name. I don't know what to make of that. I just think it's interesting and Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. As Maybe now he remembers. Oh, yeah, Elijah, that's his name. And uh, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, all three kings, they went down to him. Please notice that only one of these kings is godly. I think it's important for us to realize that. One man is in a jam amongst his fellow soldiers. And this one man loves the Lord God. And this one man is God's going to use to save the day. You know, don't ever sell your Jesus short of working big time in your life when you're by yourself, even when you've kind of created the jam, because they've created this jam. They went down there without the proper water. But there's a godly man in their midst. Team, be the light there. Shine the light of Jesus in those situations and let Jesus work through you as you affect these lost people in your life. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. So if Elisha would have went by himself, he would be in bad shape. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Again, showing he's really got a guilty conscience here. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Can we all see that? If it weren't for the man who has a relationship with the Lord God, we would not be having this conversation. So we want to let our light so shine before men, team, that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't ever underestimate what Jesus wants to do through you as he works in you, even if you're outnumbered, because that's what's happening here. But now bring me a musician, Elisha says. It's a great picture here. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Please, please don't, don't, don't miss what happens when music is played. Because there's something happening here when, when music is being played. The, the Lord's going to speak to him. And certainly that happens when we gather because the Bible says that when two or three are gathered together, Jesus is in our midst and he inhabits the praises of his people. So don't miss what happens when music is played, both when we gather and whatever you listen to. We see the prophets in Samuel's day playing music, prophesying. When we get into the Chronicles, we'll find men who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and praise to the Lord.
great reasons why we worship. Please don't underestimate our worship time. So Elijah asking for a musician is consistent what we see in the Old Testament. And if you go look at Ephesians chapter 5, 18 and 19, we'll see it's the same way in the New Testament where the Holy Ghost is poured out upon our lives. And so he asks, he comes, and as this unknown musician plays, verse 16, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches, for thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, as the rain is going to be raining way up north, because they are way down below sea level. You're not going to see it. You know, there's going to be probably a flash flood that's going to happen up way up north, some 40 miles away or 30 miles away. Yet the valley in front of you shall be filled with water so that your cattle and your animals may drink. And, and to this day, flash floods occur there. You see the water runoff from Hebron, Jerusalem and all that, it runs downhill, obviously, and the Dead Sea area is 1,400 feet below sea level. So that, that water, you know, it's going to come down and it fills up the creeks to this day. So that's what's going to happen. But at the same time, this could be all supernatural. Certainly God's going to direct a massive rainfall to happen up north. They're not going to see the clouds. It's going to be sunny and hot and sweaty down there where they are, down south of the Dead Sea. But they're going to see the water coming. Now, be a soldier with me for a moment, but not a front guy. Be a guy that's been in the back, you know. You've got three kings coming, and they're marching through hot, dusty, sandy land. How, how dusty is it in the back? Okay, so imagine being one of the soldiers at the back of the formation where it's the dustiest, and these three kings come back and say to their dry, near-dead, thirsty men, let's dig ditches, boys. <laughs> But that's what this whole chapter and the next chapter is about, is you got to do your part in anticipation of what the Lord wants to do, because he's going to do the greater part. And just because the God of the Bible is a God of love to his children, check out verse 18. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Now, if you've read ahead, you know he's going to use the ditches to do that. But they have to dig the ditches. You see, if they don't dig the ditches when the water comes, what are they going to do? Oh, there it goes. <laughs> God did his part. But you got to step out of the boat. So here's what you do for the water problem. And just because I can, God says, I'm going to deliver the Moabites in your hand. And it just keeps getting better as the Lord gives them a total battle plan with great details here. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city. And you shall cut down every good tree I add you could build with, because the law said you weren't supposed to cut down fruit trees for food. So cut down every uh, good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of, piece of land with stones. We don't want them moving back in here. That's what I take from this. You know, the Lord says, look, we don't want them back. Let, let them, you know, they're, they're gonna, we're going to wipe them out. We don't want anyone else moving back in here. And so once the Lord has spoken, now it's up to them. They have to step out and get it done. And they do in a big way. It doesn't, it does, there's no, uh, what, are you crazy? None of that. I mean, they're desperate. They're never going to make it back to Jerusalem and get water. They're going to die on the way. Now, it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. And it was filled 
because they dug the ditches. And yet I wonder if any thought when they saw that water coming, man, I wish I would have dug my ditches deeper. Or maybe someone else said, man, I wish I would have dug more ditches. Please notice that God's water in those ditches is going to fulfill, like I said, dual purposes here. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered and they stood at the border. So everyone has come out to this fight. And I believe they've assembled at night, it seems, because they are, they're already here before the sun comes up. Then they rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites, as they looked, saw the water on the other side as red as blood. You know, you know when you get level with water and, and it gets way out there, it kind of ripple or something and maybe even throw off some colors? Well, they, they think it's blood. Of course, see, they don't know that, that Israel was out of water. They don't know that. They don't know that the Lord told them, dig the ditches, get rehydrated. Verse 23. And they not, and they not knowing that said, this is blood. And I'm sure it probably even looked like blood. And if it wasn't because of the sun, I'm sure God made it look that way. The kings, remember, three different ones? This is, this is their mindset because this has happened before. Think of Gideon. Remember when, when Gideon takes his soldiers and they go around the whole thing, sword of the Lord, and for Gideon, they break the torches. What happens? The two, the two different groups of people, they fight, they turn on one another. You know, they wipe themselves out. So they're thinking, hey, these three different kings have struck swords against one another and killed one another, and all, all of their blood's laying over there. Now they're for Moab to the spoil. I mean, that, they're thinking this is going to be the easiest battle on the planet. At least that's what they're thinking. Last night, they must have took each other out and shed blood all over the place. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up. Now, I don't know if they're laying in the ditches. It'd be kind of a nice little thing. You know, they're thinking it's blood and you pop up. <laughs> oh, seal team. And uh, they rose up and attacked the Moabites. So they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. You know, the Lord not only brought them the water to the place where they cried out, but he also, because he can, he also brought them, the enemies, to this place of refreshment where they are. They didn't even have to leave this place of refreshment. Because they are faithful to dig the ditch, God brought the water and he brings the enemies. And these three kings killed all of the Moabites, at least most of them. Verse 25. Then they destroyed the cities and each man threw a stone on every piece of uh, land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees just like the Lord had instructed. But they left the stones of Kirahasheth intact. The city is on a hill. Pretty, in, in, pretty uh, uh, you know, you can't get to it. It's pretty uh, defendable. Very difficult to, to attack. So what do they do? Look what it says. The slingers surrounded and attacked it. Now, I have no idea what a slinger is because the Hebrew dictionary says slinger, slinger. So it's got to be someone like David when David took out Goliath. Maybe they called him a slinger. Not a swinger, but a slinger. And so here these guys are. They're standing back away from this city that they can't take because it's up on a hill. And obviously they're just slinging stones and they're tormenting them. And no doubt wiping them out. Because I'd imagine if you have a lot of slingers and they can sling a lot of stones, and they're coming up over the wall like little bombs. Verse 26, and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, 
He took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Obviously, he thought Edom was the weak link here, but the Lord had promised victory for all those who are with Jehoshaphat. Then he, the king of Moab, and this is why the Lord God wanted these nations wiped out. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, obviously, had he died, and he offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall of the city, this one on the hill, to his pagan god. And there was great indignation against Israel. Yeah, I hope so. His act was so disgusting to them, like it would be to any normal human being. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. The, the kings of Moab's actions here, I, I think it's very similar to abortion or worse yet, killing babies that were born through botched abortions. If you missed the news, you missed it. And yet the Bible says, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. It's crazy. Crazy world we live in right now. Chapter 4, verse 1. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So we get another look at the prophet school or something like that that they had in Elijah and Elisha's days. And obviously her man was in debt or he had borrowed seed or something and he hasn't been able to repay, and now he's dead. But the debt is still owed. It still has to be paid. So the creditor is coming to take the debt out on her two sons, at least until the year of Jubilee would come, and that would set him free. And so I like this look of this lady that's looking up to God when she's in a jam. We see it really in Matthew 6, 33 as well, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things shall be added to, unto you. Because that's what she's doing. She's in a jam. She's looking up. She's looking at God's people. Verse 2, as God provides for his people. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Some commentators believe this is would be anointing oil from the prophet. It doesn't say that. Let's just leave it as it is, a jar of oil. Then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere. Notice the similarity yet? Go dig ditches. Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels. Okay? Empty vessels. God can't fill vessels that are full of themselves. Empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. Get as many as you can. And when you come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So how many containers would you get? You know those big rain barrels? You get your donkey and roll down to Home Depot. Hey, I want everything you got, you know, but you got to get it in the house and you got to close the door. But this chapter is just like the last one. This chapter is going to end just like this one. They had to dig their ditches to do their part, and that allowed God to work miracle. And it's the same here. She has to collect the containers and then fill them. And she has to believe as she fills them, it's going to keep coming. God's going to do his part. 
Both require a giant view of God. And this is the problem, I think, in Christianity today. The problems become so big, God becomes so small. You know, the greatest look as to how big God is, is go to Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John have been arrested. They've been threatened. Don't say anything anymore about Jesus. It says they gather their companions together. That's like 4,000 people. And they start to pray. And it says they pray to the Lord God of heaven, or the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, or something like that. They pray to the big God. And their problem shrinks. And that's what they're doing here. If the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, is small in your eyes, I think the ditches are going to be small and the containers are going to be few. But if the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, is a giant in your eyes, your ditches are going to be deep and they're going to be close together and they're going to be stacked and there's going to be many. And your containers, man, it's going to fill the house, fill the garage, fill the attic. As long as it's inside the house with the door closed, That's all. that was the only requirement. So did she fill every room in her house? I don't know. Elisha told her, hey, fill it. Pack it in there. I like the fact here that Elisha has her and her two sons do all of this. He could have done this for her. But as he asked her to do this, this is so that they all might come to trust the Lord God in greater ways for their lives, just like their her husband or their dad did. So this becomes personal now. It's going to become their own personal experience in the midst of the trial. And parents, make sure you include your kids in the trial so they get to watch God work through them. It's important. As you look over the ditch digging and the oil filling, all of these centers around faith in God, just like it does in our own, our own lives today. So be the widow here and your two sons. You're going to all your neighbors. Um, excuse me, can I borrow your containers? Uh I wonder if someone said, why do you need them? Well, um, I also like the spiritual picture here that the vessels had to be emptied before they could be filled. I like that. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. I mean, she, the way this is worded, she's ready to pour more. And he said to her, her, one of her sons, there's not another vessel, so the oil ceased. And the Lord God still works in crazy ways like this today. His ways are not limited to our supplies. I mean, look, he's built a city that's made out of 100% gold, 1,500 miles cubed. I mean, that's like quadrillion, quadrillion pounds or tons of gold. He's not limited. The actions of this widow, again, are very similar but different when Elijah had his encounter with his widow who only had enough oil and flour to make the little piece of bread for their, their last meal, remember? Very similar, but different. You know, she made his first and then her jar of oil and bin and flour never dried up. Very similar, but different. Are there, You know, if there were 7,000 promises in the Bible, you know, of course it says four, Lockyer says seven. If there's 7,000 promises in the Bible, then there are 700 billion plus ways that the Lord God can work these things out in our lives. Amen. Amen. He is not limited by nothing. The containers are full, verse 7. And then, okay, and again, one other thing is, he only gives her a step. Certainly God works that way in our lives. I'm going to give you a step. Go get it done. I'll give you the next step. Sometimes he, maybe he gives you the whole picture. But here, here's a step. Get the containers, close the door, fill them. So she does that. 
Verse 7, then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons shall live on the rest. Oh, man, told you, Mom, we should have got those garbage, con garbage cans. We could have flew to Hawaii for the rest of our life and hey, lived in the Hilton or something. But it's, and so it's easy for the Lord to solve this widow's dilemma, just like he will yours and mine in the New Testament. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, there's people in our own church that haven't grasped that. They, the Lord wants to give them rest, but they, they're just working it all themselves. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God, God works that way. Certainly the tasks that the widow has her two sons engaged in were very easy and very light asking for containers, filling them, selling them, pocketing the rest. That's, that's about as easy and light as it gets. Verse 8, now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem. I looked. This place is still on a map today. It's an active city. Google map pulled it up. Where there was a notable woman. Notable means great or, or large. But don't think in size, but in wealth. And she persuaded him to eat some food. So Elisha has been walking by here, and, you know, I don't know if she persuaded him the first time, the second time, but she's been talking to him about it. And he's not seeking anything but the Lord, and she's pursuing him. I like that picture. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there and eat some food. You know, no motels back then, or cooking was good, their hospitality was better. If, if you watch God's Outlaw, before William Tyndale was on the run for his life, a family took him in and took care of him, just like is happening here. And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall. Now, don't think your, your roof, okay? Uh, think flat roof with rebar sticking up. Now, I don't know if they had rebar back then. I'm pretty sure they didn't. But if you go to Israel today... The houses, the flat houses have rebar sticking up. And, and it's that way because when the son gets married, he builds his house on top of the old house, and then he leaves rebar sticking up for his son to build. You know, So anyway, that's how they build. They build on the wall, and that becomes the foundation, and then they fill in the middle. Here, they're just going to build a room. So they're going to build it up, and let us put a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there as they up the deal to a B&B. &B. Before it was just B, now it's B&B. &B. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Okay, thanks for telling us that. Yeah, but here's the deal. As he's lying there, he's thinking about the hospitality of this woman. He's thinking about everything she has done for him. And then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. You might want to remember both of these names. You're going to have to hold on to it for a while. Gehazi and Shumanite woman. And when he called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? You want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. I, I, I'm fine, thank you. I don't need anything. I'm in good shape. And it appears she walks away. But Elisha's still thinking. And maybe he raises himself on, up on his bed and he says, verse 14, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. 
So he said, call her. He has an incredible relationship with the Lord. I mean, God's going to grant this. This is supernatural. This is a miracle. He know, and obviously God is pressing upon his heart this, this need to do something for her. Or maybe God wants to do something greater in her life. And as soon as he finds out she doesn't have a son in her old, hey, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Maybe she doesn't want to bug him. Maybe she came all the way in last time. Doesn't say she did it. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, oh, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. You know, being barren back then was looked down upon, whereas here in our present world, we have politicians declaring, we need to save the planet, no more children. You can't make this stuff up. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. I'm sounding the alarm. Because listen, if you go to Romans chapter 1, and it says, when they suppress the truth, God turns them, turns them over to all ungodliness. And so we obviously can see what that is in Romans chapter 1. But it doesn't stop there. Man, it, it's going to continue. It's, it is crazy. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. You know, I mean, what an amazing relationship Elisha, Elisha has with the Lord. And as the child grew... It happened one day that he went out to his father to the reapers. God wants us to know that. I don't know if he, we're supposed to think he's out there reaping with his dad. And he said to my, his father, my head, my head. So he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. So I went looking online, heat stroke or a, a, sun, or a sunstroke or something. Number one symptom of heat stroke is a throbbing headache. So maybe that's what he has here, which can actually kill you. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. So the miracle baby for being faithful to, man, to the man of God is now dead. And no doubt Satan was there telling lies to her like crazy. Ultimately, though, he died because, his, because of the wages of sin that entered in through the garden brings death. But there's something God wants to do here, I think. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. She shut the door upon him and went out. That takes faith. And I got all of this, but I don't understand this. Watch how this plays out, verse 22. Then she called to her husband, who the way this reads does not know his son has died, and said, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so her husband said, why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it's well. He doesn't know. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. In other words, drive this donkey like never before. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Now, like I said, you can find Shunem on the map. You can very easily find Mount Carmel on the map. And when you uh, map quest it or Google it, 55 miles. That's what it said. I mean, if Shunem is a Shunem, and, and I looked in all the other places, they say it is. So it's there, 55 miles. 
That's how far she's got to travel. I looked up donkey speeds. Jeez, take your pick. Four to five miles, you know, 38 miles. I, I, I don't know. But anyway, whatever. But it's 55 miles. The way this reads, it's only one donkey. So how long will it take you to travel 55 miles with you on the back of a donkey and some guy pulling it, driving it, smacking it? Because it doesn't appear he's on a donkey. At least it doesn't say he is. So how long is it going to take you? Well, the answer is, when it, in a crisis like this, way faster than if you were just going for a social visit. So it was, when the man of God saw her afar off, no doubt he could see the speed in which they were coming. It's like, hey, does that donkey have like a jet trail behind it or something? <laughs> Obviously he knew something was wrong. That he said to his servant, Gehazi, look, the Shumanite woman, remember those two names again, Gehazi and Shumanite? Please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered the same way she did to her husband, it is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. Never, never team. Maybe for other reasons, maybe like some crazy person gets in here, yeah, yeah, push her away but never for loss of life. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Wow, that's how tight his relationship was. He's totally shocked that the Lord didn't speak to him. It's a tight relationship. How about, I'm, I'm shocked when the Lord does, but he's shocked that the Lord didn't speak to him. I also like the personal look here of Elisha towards others. You know, it's so important in these days we live in that we make ourselves available to people. And so outwardly, though, this woman, she may be saying it as well, but inwardly, is that true? No way, it's not. So she said, did I ask you a son of my Lord? Did I not say, and I don't know what to make of Lord not being capitalized here. Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready. You know, pull that robe up, tie that sucker tight, maybe get a big drink and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. Obviously, he'll make better time than Elisha and the woman here. And if you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of of the child as he makes the 55-mile trip downhill to shoot him because, you know, he had to go up Mount Carmel. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, and this is where I'm going to save it for the very end, but just kind of look at how this is worded here. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. I think Elisha thought that would bring him back to life. But maybe there's a faith issue here. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. Then when Elisha, just like Elijah, remember his time? When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed, just like his mom had left him. I wonder what the dad's thinking. 
He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes to, on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. Please notice, just like when Jesus took the guy outside the city, spit, on, spit in his eyes. Hey, can you see? Oh, I see trees like, like, or I see men like trees. And then he spit in the dirt, made mud, or vice versa. He does them one before the other. There was two times. You think, wow, no, the Lord, this should happen first time. There was two. Well, it's two times here, too. And so he returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. One of many miracles working through a man that had asked his mentor for a double dose of the Holy Ghost because Elisha has many of them. And he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her. And when she came into him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground, giving honor to the Lord first as she picked up her son and went out. So, you know, it's amazing. God's miraculous power working through his servant. But there's still a lot more to come here. Verse 38. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, where there was another school of the prophets. They seemed to have two or three scattered um, around Israel. And now there was a famine in the land. Now, the sons of the prophets were sitting before Elisha. You know, they're all hungry. And Elisha said to his servant, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Of course, they don't have anything to put in it. So one went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. You know, it's a famine. Maybe he thought, wow, what a blessing from God. Gourds, you know, not just water for dinner tonight. And then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Now, I don't believe this is a word of knowledge here. You think that would have happened before they even made it. But I kind of see this more as they're biting into these gourds and they're bitter and they're nasty. Maybe the prophets are getting sick by being poisoned. Somehow there's this, in their humanness, they realize, hey, this is not good stuff. So he said, Elisha, the one who told him, hey, let's put on the pot. And by the way, don't try this at home unless the Lord's directing here. Because the power to heal is not in the flour, whether that be corn, wheat, what's that, a barley, none of it. And bring some flour, and he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Why? Because the Lord God did another miracle here. So, and I even went checking. I went on the poison control size. Does, you know, does flour do, no. Flour doesn't do anything for you. So if the Lord's not telling you flour, don't, you know, you come across someone that's poisoned. Here, I got the thing for you here. Suck on this flour ball or something. No, not good here. I, I know in the new covenant that we live in, Jesus told his church in Mark 16, verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe in my name, and that's kind of important in Jesus' name, not a show like we would see on TV, but in Jesus' name, not the Holy Ghost's name, but Jesus' name, they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, not to exercise your faith, that's tempting God, but like Paul did after the shipwreck, when he was gathering sticks in the Viper struck and fastened to his hand. And Paul just kind of shook it off in the fire. And the natives there thought he was going to die because it was a poisonous snake. But 
he was unharmed. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They'll lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And so it's kind of like how the Lord worked through the flower. You know, the Lord brought that healing. It's the same way for you and I. I'm sure that I, I've eaten and drunk, drank stuff out on the mission fields. Maybe even we all have here when we're out serving the Lord and Jesus protects us and we never even realize it. But it's not like a show we would see on TV. And, you know, but it's just the Lord working through his people, just like we see here. Then a man came from Baal Shalishia and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. Now, again, I like this look here. Not because Elisha is receiving these first fruits. He, he shouldn't be. Who should be receiving the first fruits? The priests. But see, up in the northern kingdom where Elisha is, the priests of all, the true priests have all went south. There's no seekers of the one true Lord God up there. So this man, this unnamed man, this interesting man, brings his first fruits to a man that he believes represents God Almighty up in this northern kingdom. And he brings 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. So, you know, he's got a backpack. It's not like he's got some dump truck here. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. Remember, there's a famine going on. That's why they had to go out and get the wild gourds. And the unnamed man said, give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? Some people put this as Elisha. I just don't see that at all. But it says Elisha's servant said, what? And then they say Elisha said the second part. I don't see that at all. Because it said, Elisha's servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? The unnamed man said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Ooh, supernatural like Jesus did twice in the Gospels. Kind of makes you wonder who this unnamed man is, right? So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Just like Jesus did. And, and now for the fourth time, we, we've seen this. The water people needed to dig. The widow lady and her two sons had to collect, close the door and fill. The sons of the prophets had to put in the flour. And now Elisha's servant, like I said, I don't think this is Elisha doubting. He had to sit out and serve this bread that it might multiply. And see, all of this flows out of a place of weakness that God's strength and God's power might be displayed. And that matches Paul's life, exactly what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul declares the words of Jesus to him, when Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. I mean, all these people were in desperate situations, and in that place of weakness, God showed himself strong. And Paul's response to Jesus were, therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that would be sickness. In reproaches, battles, in needs, I need cash. They're going to sell. Me, they're going to take my sons. In persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And we find those same needs in all the people we looked at in these two chapters today. None of them were strong. All of them were in great need, and God rocked their lives. 
the only event in these two chapters where God did not work, it seems, and, and I'm totally guessing here, is the well-off lady with the dead son. doesn't seem that worked. Is it because she needed to trust the Lord and not Elisha? I don't know. You, you go back and look at it. Acts 17, 11. Maybe she needed to trust the Lord would work through the staff and not through the one man that she was clinging to. I, I don't know. But I like the fact that she needs to trust the staff and not through the one man. Now preach the man. Father, we thank you for, Lord, all that you want to do in our lives, Lord, for these incredible pictures that we see. Lord, for the lesson that recurs over and over and over. 